So I want to take a moment to mention that some of the things I said last week may have sounded ableist, which means that something is wrong or bad about being lame or blind or ill, physically ill, mentally ill, anything ill, um, and that anyone facing things like this must need healing. And that is not the case at all. Although Jesus did do physical and mental healings all the time, those were just billboards from God to let people know that Jesus was the real deal and they should listen to him. Jesus did heal bodies and minds and got a lot of attention for doing it. But what was really going on was much bigger and deeper than that. When we talk about healing in this class and in scripture, we're talking about the concept of being made whole in deeper and more invisible ways. It means all the things that the word save means in Greek, to heal, preserve, rescue, do well, to be made whole. This sort of healing, this sort of salvation applies to all of us, regardless of our physical, mental, or emotional state. So on with the story. Although we met last Saul last week, at this point, Saul is just a baby Christian. The real leaders of the church are Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. Now, James, we don't know a lot about him, but he seems to stay homebound in Jerusalem throughout Scripture. But Peter travels all over Palestine, spreading the good news. What's interesting, though, is that Peter only goes to the Jews. Peter is a devout Jew who follows all the commands of the law of Moses as they are understood at that time. He therefore sees Gentiles as being literal filth, unclean, disgusting, blasphemous in their manner of eating and of worshiping. But the Holy Spirit has other ideas. There's a man living in Caesarea, the beautiful seaside town where Pontius Pilate had his home. Now, this this man's name is Cornelius, and he's a Roman centurion. And he worships God, not Jesus, God. He is what is known at the time as a, quote, God-fearer. This is a term used for people who worship in the synagogue with the Jews and who keep the law, but they're not circumcised Jews. Cornelius and all his household are God-fearers. Cornelius, this Roman centurion, gives freely to those in need and prays to God constantly. One day, about three in the afternoon, Cornelius sees an angel. Well, Cornelius does a double take, and when he realizes this angel is real, he becomes alarmed, and the angel calls to him, Cornelius. Cornelius says, what is it, sir? And the angel says, God has seen your prayers and how you have helped the poor. These are offerings in your name before God. 
And so you are now to send men to Joppa to get a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now that's pretty specific. So as soon as the angel leaves, Cornelius calls two of his trusted servants and one of his soldiers and tells them what just happened. Uh, these these are people that he must be close with his household because he had, tells them he just saw an angel and the angel told him to do all these things. So he sends the three of them off to Joppa to find this man named Simon Peter. About noon the following day, as the centurion's men are nearing Joppa, Peter goes up on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house to pray. Well, he gets hungry. And while the meal is being prepared, Peter has a vision. He sees heaven opening up and something like a giant sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. And in it are all kinds of animals, both clean and unclean. Um, it some of the animals are the kind that cannot be eaten by Jews. And some of them can. And a voice tells him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, absolutely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything unclean. And a second time, the voice speaks. What God has cleansed, you may not call unclean. Well, this happens three times, which I assume means Peter says no three times, which is, you know, Peter is the three-time denial kind of guy, kind of guy. His, his three, three times has been in his story all along. So after three times of this vision repeating itself, um, then the great sheet with all the animals is taken back up into heaven. So Peter stays up there on the roof praying and trying to figure out the meaning of this vision. Meanwhile, Cornelius's men have just arrived downstairs. They call out, Yoo-hoo! to see if Simon Peter is there. But Peter does not hear them because he's still on the roof praying. So the Holy Spirit has to tell Peter, Peter, there's three men looking for you. I've sent them. Get up and go with them. So Peter goes down to the courtyard and sees the men there. And he says, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And the men tell him the whole story about the centurion Cornelius being a God-fearer and how he saw a vision and how he sent them to get Peter. So Peter invites the men in to stay for the evening. And the next day, the three men and Peter, along with some of the other believers from Joppa, who have now obviously heard the story of the angel, travel back to Caesarea. Peter, of course, had immediately connected the dots between the vision he'd had and the fact that all these men the Lord sent for him are Gentiles. But his insides must be absolute jelly because he's going against everything he's ever believed in. When the travelers arrive in Joppa, they discover Cornelius has gathered all his relatives and close friends together, and he's obviously told them the whole story about the angel. I imagine 
Peter takes a moment outside the door, gathering himself to actually enter the home of a Gentile, checking with the Lord one last time. When Peter finally does step across the threshold, Cornelius meets him and prostrates himself. But Peter lifts him up and says, get up. I am just a man myself. And then Peter turns around to the crowd of people in the room and he says, you know that it is against our law to be friends with or even be in the proximity of a Gentile. But God has made it clear to me that I am not to call any person unclean. That's why I agreed to come here in the first place. So tell me now, why have you sent for me? And Cornelius, this important man, this Roman centurion, again tells what happened to him and how a man in bright shining clothes told him God had heard his prayer. And that makes me wonder what Cornelius was praying about so urgently. The passage never tells us. Was he asking to know God better? To know how to grow beyond just giving alms and doing good deeds? At any rate, Peter says, I understand now that God does not show partiality to anyone, but that in every nation, anyone who is a God-fearer and does works of justice is acceptable to him. Now, that's consistent, Peter says, with the word he sent to the sons of Israel through Jesus, who proclaimed the good news of peace. Peter now realizes that the good news Jesus taught is the same message announced at Jesus' birth, peace on earth and goodwill from God towards all people. It's just like all of a sudden this has dawned on Peter that That's what Jesus said. That was what was prophesied about Jesus. Understanding that this, this this good news of peace on earth and goodwill to all people, this is understanding that, that this is God's heart towards us is what heals us. That's what makes us whole. By bringing this message, Jesus is offering us salvation. He's offering us healing and wholeness, a close awareness of God and participation in all that God is doing. And all we have to do is believe it. Peter says, you all know what has happened. You know about John the Baptist and all about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how Jesus went all through the country doing good and healing everyone who is being treated harshly by the accuser, the slanderer. You know how God was with Jesus. We bear witness to everything he did in the country and in Jerusalem. We witnessed his death on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day, and many of us 
saw him, not just one or two, many of us. We ate with him and drank with him, and he told us to proclaim to the people and to solemnly testify that he is the one appointed by God as judge of both the living and the dead. All the prophets bear witness that everyone believing in him receives forgiveness through his name. Now, what is Peter talking about here? Did the prophets of the Hebrew Bible talk about the Messiah bringing forgiveness? Peter is saying Jesus is the Messiah and anyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. Now, is that in the Bible? Well, the prophets did indeed say this many times, many times. There's a great example in Isaiah 33. Um, this particular setting, the end of the kingdom of Israel is drawing near. She's about to be conquered by Assyria from the north, an ancient kingdom. And the Lord sees the suffering and oppression of Israel and says, now I will arise. Now I will be exalted and will lift myself up. So look at that. That could be speaking directly to the resurrection of Jesus, couldn't it? God lifting himself up. Your eyes will see Jerusalem no longer oppressed, but as a peaceful dwelling place, a tent that will never again be moved. Now we know from this statement that this whole prophecy is set in the end time. That's why because Jerusalem, this did not happen to Jerusalem during, you know, the lifetime of these Israelites that Isaiah was talking about. This was not a thing. Um, so this whole thing is seen as a prophetic messianic prophecy. It's about the Messiah. And, and what happens when the Messiah comes? So we'll continue with what Isaiah says. Isaiah tells the Israelites, the Lord will be with us there. Jerusalem will be a place of broad rivers and streams, yet no hostile ship will sail near it. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord will make the decrees and the Lord will save us. Not one person will say, I am weak or I am sick. For the people who dwell there with God will be forgiven their sins. That last phrase is usually translated as forgiven their sins or forgiven their iniquities, but it can also be translated as the lifting away of their guilt and their punishment. And this is what Jesus did during his entire lifetime. He went around removing our malaise by lifting away our guilt and therefore our punishment. He lifted it off our shoulders. There are tons of prophecies like this. And, and for those prophecies, the timing is usually associated with the end time coming of the Lord, the arrival of the Messiah. So Peter is telling Cornelius and his family and his friends that the time has come. It is now. Jesus has brought it. Well, the Holy Spirit falls powerfully on all those in the room, on that whole room full of Gentiles. The Jews who had come with Peter are dumbfounded as they hear the Gentiles speaking in tongues and 
praising God. In this very moment, Peter remembers what Jesus had told the apostles before he left. He said, wait here in Jerusalem until you receive the gift my father promised. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And in a flash, Peter realizes that not only are these Gentiles clean and acceptable in God's eyes, but God has given them the same gift of the Holy Spirit that he'd given the, the apostles, the same gift. And so Peter says, who can withhold baptism from people the Holy Spirit has laid hold of? And he tells the Gentiles they must be baptized in the name of Jesus. And he stays with them for several days. When Peter and the disciples traveling with him return to Jerusalem, well, some of the believers there take offense and criticize him for going into the house of uncircumcised men and eating with them, even if they are God-fearers. But when Peter explains everything that happened, their criticism turns into praise of God, and it dawns on the believers in Jerusalem that God is welcoming even the Gentiles. Now, if you recall, after Stephen was stoned in Jerusalem, there were further persecutions of the believers there. Many refugees fled the city and are now settling as far away as Phoenicia, north of Palestine, the island of Cyprus, and some even go as far as Antioch in Syria, which is the third largest city in the whole Roman Empire. It's huge. You can see why Antioch is such an important city by looking at the map. It's only a few miles from the point at which the great Euphrates River starts its bend to the north. Trade goods and people coming from the east and heading towards Rome will travel overland from the Euphrates to Antioch to access the Mediterranean Sea. It is a huge cosmopolitan city and a great place for refugees from Jerusalem to hide. And once there, of course, the refugees go to the synagogues to find other Jews. And there they tell them about Jesus. The believers are soon joined in Antioch by men from Cyrene in Africa and from the island of Cyprus. Now, these men from these locations are Hellenistic believers. So rather than spreading the good news to the Jews, they spread the good news to the Greeks. So Antioch swiftly becomes a metropolitan hub of new believers. When the church in Jerusalem hears of this, they send Barnabas to Antioch to see what's going on. You may remember Barnabas. He was one of the rich men who sold his possessions when the apostles needed funds to support believers who were in need. His very name means son of comfort and encouragement. And he is a Levite from the island of Cyprus who is living now in Jerusalem. So he's now been sent up to Antioch. And when Barnabas arrives in Antioch, he can plainly see what God is doing in this new community of believers. And true to his name, he encourages them. 
And it is here in Antioch that the believers are first called Christians. It's now around 39-40 Common Era. Barnabas heads west to Saul's hometown of Tarsus. And when he finds Saul there, he brings him back with him to Antioch. I figure Barnabas is killing two birds with one stone. Saul is obviously a gifted leader and is very vocal and passionate, but he's sort of a loose cannon right now. He's had no training other than what he received as a Pharisee. So I think Barnabas brings him back to Antioch to teach him and also to harness his energy to help Barnabas minister to the growing body of believers. During this time, a group of prophets led by a man named Agabus comes to Antioch from Jerusalem. Now, this is the first time we've met the prophet Agabus, but remember him. He's going to show up in the story later. While at Antioch, Agabus predicts that a terrible famine will spread all over the Roman Empire. We know from several ancient historians that this actually happens about six years later in 46 Common Era. And the fact that so many historical sources mention this famine means it must have been a terrible, vast famine indeed. But it hadn't happened yet. Nevertheless, the disciples in Antioch believe Agabus's prediction, and they take up a collection to send help back to the believers in Jerusalem and Judea who are already suffering and persecuted and impoverished. They don't, however, entrust the money to Agabus and the other prophets. <laughs> Instead, they send the money back to Jerusalem in the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Well, things are not going so well in Jerusalem. Herod Agrippa I, grandson of Herod the Great, has maneuvered politically so that he rules his uncle's former regions of Galilee and Perea, shown on the map in green. And he's recently been appointed as ruler over Judea in the pink as well. As the new ruler of Jerusalem, he's had several Christians arrested and is planning to torture or kill them. He's already had James, the brother of John, put to death by the sword. James was one of Jesus's beloved disciples, one of the sons of thunder, as he nicknamed them. He's the one with the pushy mother who wanted him and his brother to sit at Jesus' right and left when he came into power. The killing of one of the 12 original disciples must be sending shockwaves through the community of believers. How can this happen? Where is Jesus? Why hasn't he come back already? This move by Herod Agrippa was so successful with the religious powers in Jerusalem that he has the temerity to arrest Peter himself during the Passover festival. Peter, the miracle worker. Peter, the leader of this upstart movement. Knowing Peter's reputation for miracles, and knowing his popularity among the people, Herod Agrippa places 16 guards over Peter. His plan is to guard him for a few days and then bring him out for trial as soon as the Passover festival is over. 
the church community prays for Peter constantly. The night before he is to be brought to trial, Peter is sleeping, chained with a soldier on either side of him and more soldiers guarding the door. Well, suddenly an angel of the Lord appears. From its usage in scripture, we know that this phrase signifies the Lord himself appearing as a man at a critical juncture in the life of the church. God's got things for Peter to do. Light shines around the angel of the Lord and he shakes Peter awake saying, hurry, get up. The chains fall from Peter's wrists. The angel says, get dressed and follow me. So Peter, thinking he's dreaming or just seeing a vision, follows him out of the prison. And this cracks me up. It reminds me of the scene in Little Bing Man where the old Indian chief walks right through a battle, convinced he's invisible. That's what this is like. Peter and the angel go by the first set of guards, then the second set of guards, and finally come to the iron gate in the outer wall. It opens for them all by itself. And after a few more paces, Peter suddenly finds himself alone. And he realizes this is not a dream, but he's well and truly been rescued by the Lord. But he's a wanted man out on the street in the middle of night, right outside the prison, and he's got to find a safe place to hide. So he runs to the house of Mary, the mother of Mark. He doesn't know it yet, but many believers are there inside praying for him at this very moment. A young servant girl named Rhoda comes to answer the door, and Rhoda asks, who's there? And when Peter answers, Rhoda gets so excited and overjoyed, she runs back to tell the others and she forgets to actually open the door. I bet she never lives that down. And that's probably why her name is remembered and recorded here in scripture. It must have become a huge joke told over and over again. Remember the time Rhoda left Peter standing in the street? Well, the folks inside don't believe Rhoda. She has to convince them that Peter is actually at the door. And finally, they say, oh, that's impossible. It must be his angel. That's the only explanation they can come up with. Now, as an aside, there certainly has not been any indication in Scripture so far that humans have angels that look and sound like them. So be sure you don't go building a theology about angels out of this one reference from a bunch of new believer, believers trying to figure out what's going on. Meanwhile, poor Peter is still standing in the street, knocking on the door, trying not to attract attention. Finally, Rhoda convinces the believers inside to open the door. They start rejoicing. But Peter signals them to hush, hush, hush. Quickly, they go inside and shut the door. And Peter tells them everything that has happened. He says, tell James, the brother of Jesus, not the one that got killed. The, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this too. And then he quickly leaves to find somewhere else to hide. His presence will put all these believers in danger. So the next morning, there is an uproar at the palace when it is discovered the prisoner has escaped all 16 guards, including the ones he was chained to. 
Herod Agrippa orders a search, and when Peter is not found, he orders the execution of the hapless guards. And this is the last we hear of Herod Agrippa. Luke inserts a little coda telling us what ultimately happens to this wicked king. Um, and Luke's story is similar to that told by the historian Josephus, who also lived during this time. And here's what they say happens to him. Like the other rulers before him, Herod Agrippa lives in a palace on the shores of the Mediterranean in the town of Caesarea. And a huge crowd of Phoenicians, people from the north, from Tyre and Sidon, have gathered in Caesarea for, for some Olympic-style games. They are coming because they want to make nice with Agrippa because Agrippa controls their food supply. Well, according to Josephus, Agrippa dons a silver garment that is so brilliant in the sun that the people become frenzied and begin shouting that Agrippa is a god, not a king. Well, unbeknownst to them, Agrippa is dying a slow and painful death, possibly cancer, possibly a severe bacterial infection. I even saw an ABC News article that suggested gangrene of the genitals. Ouch. Whatever it is, Agrippa is suffering terribly under all that bling. Josephus says Agrippa, hearing them calling him a god, does nothing to reject the people's worship. But then he looks up and he sees an omen that he knows portends his imminent death. He withdraws to his bed where he lingers for five days in mortal agony before he finally dies. This coincides with Luke's assessment in Acts that Herod Agrippa is struck down because he accepts the people's worship and fails to give the glory to God. As Luke puts it, Agrippa is eaten by worms and dies. Ouch. This is the end of our class series on Pentecost and persecution. In our breakout groups, I want to go back and think about the difference between water baptism and baptism in the Holy Spirit. We got some new information in class today um, that we should take with us into the discussion. Really, the first two questions you can just breeze through. It's, it's the third and the fourth questions that are the meat of the discussion. So uh, don't, don't let yourselves get bogged down. There we are. Okay. That was interesting. Good. Our, our, tell, tell me about it. We actually made it to number four, sort of. <laughs> Joe was just getting ready to say something when we left. Well, I think, I don't know. I mean, after reading all this today, things are a little bit shifted. And maybe the purpose of water baptism in the name of Jesus It's not only like our choosing to be baptized, baptized by water. And that's, that's what I was thinking was maybe the difference between that Holy Spirit. But maybe it's also kind of a billboard for other people. Yeah. As Gail calls it. For yeah. us and other people, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and what I was going to say before I exited unceremoniously was that... Um, in the denominations where infants are baptized, 
um, in the churches I have attended that, that do practice infant baptism, what that is is a public statement and commitment on the part of the parents to raise the child in the faith and on the part of the congregation to assist the parents in raising the child in the faith and also a welcoming of that child into the family of God as someone that is going to be nurtured in the faith. So it is that and my understanding of adult baptism are both that this is a public statement of connection to the family of God. Do you then believe that the infant needs to rebaptize when they're older and they have understanding? No, because the, the baptism um, in both the Baptist churches I've been in and Presbyterian and Methodist churches is that this is not this is more a statement of a of of a personal relationship or commitment, um, not necessary for quote unquote salvation. It's like a statement of intent, huh? Um, yeah. Martha, you have your hand up. The way I'm uh, more comfortable with it and the way that I'm more comfortable with it and which I believe is how we say it in our denomination is that in any case, the actor is God. Um, and that is why an infant baptism is as valid has the same effect um, as baptism by request is because the actor is God. <laughs> and what what is the effect as you perceive it? What is the effect as I perceive it? For God to... Um, this is my beloved on whom I'm well pleased. I realize that God said that about Jesus specifically, but that doesn't mean that that's not what God is saying about the person being baptized. About all of us, right? Jesus was mm -hmm. the first among brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that's a great answer, Martha. <laughs> our group went down a theological rabbit hole. And I think what we established was it it's an it depends on the religion that you're participating in, their requirements, their thing their it's like an initiation mm -hmm. in all these different religions, if it happens as a child, as an adult, but that receiving the Holy Spirit is different that is personal between you and god but the way you do your public profession that you are of the faith and the requirements of the religion you're participating in varies from group to group mm -hmm. now, i was gonna say my husband grew up in a church um a dispensationalist church that believed that water baptism only belonged to the dispensation of when Jesus was on earth and the very early church. And they did not baptize. 
They did not believe in baptism. And so he was not baptized until we went to join a Presbyterian church, which required baptism as a prerequisite for membership in the church. Um, and he asked me a lot of questions about what was my understanding of baptism before he agreed to go through it, because he didn't see it as necessary for someone who was already a Christian and walking in faith. Um, and so that, to me, reinforced my view that baptism is truly a public statement to the community and to the world of where your heart is aligned. I think it could also be more than that. I mean, God forgives us of, of all of our sins, whether we're baptized or not. <laughs> but, but by being baptized with water, uh, it is a message to the person being baptized. God has cleaned you. God has cleansed you and therefore forgiven you of your sins. And so it can be it can have a profound effect on the person being baptized. In True, that way, I, it echoes a lot the whole sacrificial system that the the Hebrews had in, in the Hebrew Bible, where there was nothing magic about what they were doing. It was it was so they would know that they were with God, mm -hmm. that, that they were acceptable to God. You were washed clean. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was baptized twice. I was baptized the first time when I was born. Because I was extremely premature and my gram was worried I was going to die. So oh. her being Catholic, or no, Celtic Catholic, she's like, mm, baptized. So then when my husband and I, several, gosh, Sandra was 14, 15 years old, we were, we went to, a, started going to a Baptist church. And the three of us, Sandra and Rhea were baptized in the Lutheran church. And of course I was baptized when I was a baby. They were infants too um because that's just kind of what you did and, and uh so then when i was when we went to join the baptist church the three of us had to get rebaptized because the first one didn't count and then my husband who got baptized like in a church of christ i think it was when he was 12 he was fine it was it was he was good. He didn't have to get rebaptized. And it always bothered me that they discounted something that was so important to my grandmother. They didn't recognize her billboard. Uh-uh. Yeah. No, yeah. they didn't. And yeah. and so that the second time was more meant nothing, but the first time meant something more to me. And I did confirmation actually as an adult in a Lutheran church. Mm -hmm. um, and so th that whole process seemed to me more to me than the Baptist church saying, you know, you have to get dunked. Um, yeah. my When I was in nursing school, we were taught that if we were working in labor and delivery um, or in another situation where there was a newborn that was critical and the parents were Catholic, that we were authorized by the Catholic Church to baptize those infants in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Wow. Some of my classmates who came from a more Baptist-leaning kind of background were extremely uncomfortable with that and had to have a conversation with the instructors. Of, I don't think I can do this. I think this is blasphemous. 
And the instructors said, what you were doing is providing comfort to the parents whose belief requires their infant to be baptized in order for that child to go to heaven. And so it doesn't really matter what you believe. It matters what the parents believe and how are you providing comfort for them in this awful situation. That's the beautiful. Episcopal Church is the same. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. Marlene, as you described the Catholic Church, that in so, an emergency situation, anybody can do a baptism. Yeah. Uh, I'm, my story is similar to Renee's. I was born um, in France and I was four pounds and so they didn't have incubators and they were, you know, fearful. So they ran and got the only thing they could find, which was a Catholic priest. And um, I was baptized the day I was born. And then when we moved to Wiley, which is 45 miles northeast of Dallas, um, we left the Lutheran church and but we were vacillating between the Methodist church and the Baptist church because we visited both. And when I met with the pastors, the Baptist pastor told me we all had to get rebaptized to join his church. And I got up and I said, that's a deal breaker for me. Um, and he said, well, don't you think I said, no, I think that my baptism is between me and God. Mm. And it's not, you're not part of it. <laughs> and that may have been harsh, but, if no, I billboard. agree with you. <laughs> you Say know, Rhonda asked the question. I agree with you, Joe. Um, Rhonda asked the question about: Do some churches require immersion? What if you don't want to get completely mm. wet? Would that be a showstopper? And that makes me think of I. I when I was baptized at nineteen, I was. I, too, was baptized as an infant in the Episcopalian Church, but then I was baptized at 19 in a Southern Baptist Church. That was immersion. But then when my son was baptized as a Methodist, it was a sprinkling. Mm -hmm. So I think this is all up to the different theologies and how they handle it. So if you have an issue with one way of doing it, find another theology. <laughs> they're all Christians. They're all Christians. They're right. They're just different denominations. They've, denominations. They, they, they all split off along the way. Different streams. They, they is right. Right. Mm -hmm. well, I have a question what for really, What really is sad is that people have actually killed each other over yes. these silly differences and rejected yeah. each yeah. other split right. families just yeah. stupid split churches stupid stupid they stupid still yep. do. yeah, still yeah. well like well, I, I, have two I wear hearing aids so the thought of getting my well i take them out but the the thought of getting my head wet i mean i shower but it's different when you're like and yeah. flipping back that just like freaks me out so method was baptized methodist Presbyterian. I didn't have to get re didn't have to do that. <laughs> the flipping yeah. back thing. I'm like, oh my goodness. Let me go forward and come up. But absolutely, yeah. when some churches had to baptize forward, yeah. and there's actually arguments between those who baptize forward and those who baptize backwards. Oh, when you're supposed to go back. Oh, when Sandra home. had to be rebaptized, um, it took a lot of coaxing on everybody's part because 
She is terrified of water. She's terrified oh. of drowning. She can't take a bath. Bless her heart. She has to take a shower because baths are, you know, that's, she almost drowned when she was like five or six. She went down a slide at a, swimming, a friend's swimming pool and didn't know how to swim. And she almost drowned. And so to get her to be baptized, you know, and it was basically her Sunday school teacher um, in the junior high group told her that she it's just something she has to do. And I, so I was kind of spicy about the whole situation. <laughs> Yeah, it brings them. Think of every situation where somebody doesn't actually get immersed. Yeah, that just leaves them out. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. My son had tubes in his ears, and he ended up. You know how most people? Well, you may not know this, but um, the pastors will have a handkerchief in their hands, and they'll cover your nose and mouth when they put you under, so that you feel a little more like you're not going to drown. And my son, when he was baptized, had his fingers pushing in his ears like this so that he didn't get water in his ears because he had tubes in his ears. Oh my goodness. Marlene? Yeah, I was going to say when, when I was a young girl, my parents were missionaries um, and we were down in Brazil and were attending uh, a church in the city of Rio that had been founded by Southern Baptist, American Southern Baptist missionaries. And my sister and I were told that we were not Christians because we had not yet been baptized. And my mom was irate, but because the church had this incredibly strong belief regarding baptism, we had to go ahead and get baptized, probably younger than we would normally have done, because mm-hmm. otherwise we were told we weren't Christians. That's that's what I was going to say, what I was trying to say. I have two questions. How many of you were taught or in a church that believed you had to be baptized to be saved? I was. Yeah, I got I got baptized more than once because I kept questioning if I really believed it the first time. Oh, wow. I got baptized at least three times, I'm sure. I have heard that, Joe, but I, the Episcopal Church, I don't think, believes that. Even our Baptist church didn't teach that. You were baptized because you were saved, not to get saved. Well, again, I was young in the Baptist church, and I don't know... You know, that that's where I came out of with that, whether they actually taught that. Right. That's what you understood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I had the idea that if I didn't do that right, I wasn't really saved. Right. Now, Martha, no, I did I see you wave your hand? Yeah, I'm going to complicate the whole theological question. understanding here a little bit. Um, having been raised Catholic and to, uh, I don't remember if it was Marlene or who was saying about their nursing school experience, um, what would happen if an infant died if without benefit, if a person died without benefit of baptism is not that they would go to hell, but they would go to purgatory and wait it out until. Mm-hmm. And um, so that begs the question of what does it mean to be saved? Mm-hmm. Um, because the that was never a word that had emphasis in the Catholic tradition I grew up in. Salvation, yes. Are you saved? Not a question. Not There's even. Or are you baptized? 
are you baptized? It has this child been baptized? A priest would go kind of bananas if they saw a family out with an infant in public that hadn't been baptized because what if it caught something and got sick and died? And I want to point out, I want to move on to our second half of the discussion um, because it's important. Um, but I want to point out that the anecdotes that we are sharing, and we are a broad cross-section of, of Christian denominations here, all kinds of backgrounds. Um, and we're all in different places in our faith journeys now at this moment. But what is sticking in our minds and what we sh are sharing have the tone of these things don't seem right to me. These are things that have happened to me in my life or to others that are not lining up with the witness of the Holy Spirit in my heart. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and I'm, and I, and I just want to repeat what I always say is go with the witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart and let the rest of it go. Because almost everything that you have shared about these experiences has been people throwing up barriers or fear around God or access to the community. And that is always wrong. If it's a barrier to God, it is wrong. And I love the, um, it, and I'm gonna, I wanna add that one of the things, my little anecdotal contribution to this is um, I got fed up with the Methodist church when um, they refused to baptize an adult who had been sprinkled as an infant. And mm -hmm. it was important to her. It was her billboard and she needed it. Are you, and, saying, that, are you saying that she was sprinkled as an infant? And, but she in the Methodist church, yes. But she wanted an adult baptism? Yes. And they wouldn't do it in the Methodist church Absolutely because it had been not. done already. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they said it would be um, saying that the first one wasn't real or the, the Holy Spirit didn't do an act. They saw it, you know, saw it as meaningless. So that's just my contribution to this. And I, and I want to say that if that I found your comments that you made at the, all of you collectively at the beginning of the discussion about how you perceived water baptism as you thought through this what you all said was god is the one taking the action and god is simply saying this is my child with whom i am so pleased and that it is an a billboard an act that is a billboard to oneself and to others mm -hmm. um that those things would, if you stuck with those, you would not have problems with whether somebody was dunked or sprinkled with whether it was an infant or an adult, whether it was done more than once. Those things are not putting barriers for people who are trying to come to God. 
Yes. Yeah, I have a question. Uh -huh. <clears throat> I'd like to put this out there because this group means a lot to me. And I'd like to know if maybe I'm not being open-minded about something. Joe asked the question about being baptized and walking away from the faith. Do you lose that relationship? And the reason, I think, no, I think once saved, always saved. But someone close to me was talking about another person close to me who was very much a Bible scholar as a youth and very learned and indoctrinated in their faith and now they are atheist or agnostic and the person was saying well they've walked away they are not saved anymore mm. I have a hard time with that but I'd like to hear some of the other thoughts from this group about that because maybe I need to hear that okay I'm going to go first because I, I talked first. Just because a person walks away doesn't mean that God has walked away. God, God will always be with you, whether you want it or not. God is always there. Just like um, the, the I can't remember her name, the, the poor gal in the desert with the with the baby Hagar. 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 That is like I should know her name because it's my favorite story. Hmm. She walked away because she ran away, right? Right. But God did ne never abandoned her. And I think hmm. that's what we should all remember is no matter what we do in our lives, God will never ever abandon us. God didn't even abandon Cain. That's yeah. right. The that's first right. murderer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, my story. It was brought home to me, this whole thing, um, when my dad got sick with Alzheimer. He was baptized Episcopalian and was, I don't know when he stopped going and stopped believing and all that, but he was, he was, he was atheist. He was not agnostic. He did not acknowledge God even existed or there was a God and he would argue with anyone when I was growing up, uh, you know, and I always thought, okay, so maybe my dad's bap, you know, maybe it didn't take, you know, his baptism and his, his teaching. When he got Alzheimer and when he was going towards the end stages, he started singing hymns all the time. Oh. So... I think, you know, God kind of showed me that my dad's beliefs weren't God's beliefs. That, you know, your dad's not there. He doesn't know who anyone is, but he's singing hymns. And it was like, okay, my dad's in heaven, you know? <laughs> and I think I needed that. I needed that. And I just want to say this whole thing about, about being saved um and linking that with baptism and that is linked you know there's linkages in scripture w between those words but i just want to say that it matters what you think you're being saved from and people um imp impute from hell into these scriptures where it does not say that 
And, and I think that if you look at the meaning of the word salvation, which I've being saved, which I've explained in the class, that what you're get, being saved from is, is malaise, the quagmire that you're struggling in of, of drowning in self, of, 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 of your, your helplessness and, and purposelessness, just, uh, just flailing around, missing the mark. All these things um, is is what the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit comes and changes that. Marlene, well, you had you your know, hand up. Yeah, I was going to say. And then Martha, my theology has changed dramatically um, over the last several years regarding "quote unquote" salvation, as I had traditionally been taught it. Um, that. Um, only those who, you know, proclaim the name of Jesus, accepted Jesus into their heart, you know. Say the sinner's the, prayer, all the things. Say the sinner's prayer, all those rituals that, that are traditionally associated with traditional Christian denominations. Um, I, I see that as perhaps for some people that is important to remind the person that they are now seeking to follow God in a new way. Um, but that we will see people in whatever heaven is after we die um, that never heard the name of Jesus, that never said the sinner's prayer, that were never baptized, but that a heart had a heart that sought God. And even those who didn't, God's love will somehow pursue after death so that ultimately all of humanity will be reunited with God. Mm -hmm. Now, I can't give you a chapter and verse on that, <laughs> but I also don't see chapters is, and verses that say that people who don't do those things are condemned to hell. There are conflicting chapters and verses, and you, you can read both ways. You can read the scripture both ways. Martha, what did you have to say? Um, so you were sharing something that you've shared with before having to do with that people who are not people of faith are people who flail. No, well, and who's that? that was I think the human condition is that we flail. And and people who've been baptized and who have yeah, faith, all of us, right. because I think there's, this there's whole no difference. Yeah, pardon there. And and what I was hearing and what you were saying was not your words suggesting that people who are not people of faith are de facto less than. Right. That, but I think that's, that that's not the what interpretation I that gets used. And so I worry when I hear descriptions like you used, yep. that um, that could possibly, that, that there will be some who will use, though, use that against. I mean, there's such an arrogance oh. in many. Um, and potentially in 
in me and in some of us in this room that we have something that other people don't have and they should want it. Mm. And they are all beloved. All of us, every one of us are beloved children of God. And our faith doesn't change that. God that, so loved the world. This has been very helpful because the person I need to talk with about all this is very quick to say, well, maybe that faith as, as a youth was just going through the actions, checking the boxes for those around, blah, blah, blah. And I always think it's between you and God. And yet I'm hearing this rhetoric that there's two schools. There's once saved, always saved. And then there's, but if you're saved, you seek God and you won't turn away from him. And that doesn't compute for me. Because people do turn. Mm -hmm. They do do things that they shouldn't do. And then they repent and they seek God again. Oh my goodness. What is the story of David? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I think I'm answering my question right there. That's right. I mean, it's a journey. I don't even, I don't even know what exactly saved means. Mm -hmm. That's, probably a subject mm-hmm. for another another class. Mm-hmm. But so, Julia, that's what that's why I asked the question in the box because I had a pastor at one point who told us that the holy that if we weren't, you know, I don't know, faithful to God, I don't remember what the conditions were, but that the holy spirit could leave us and not come back. And it scared the crap out of me. And then listening today to all of us I think infant baptisms are in large part out of fear. Mm-hmm. Better baptize a child or it's not in, you know, mm-hmm. how sad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit. I don't want to miss that part because that was a big part of the question. Um, and, 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 and the question, now that we kind of have a handle on where, what we kind of think about the importance of water baptism and what it is, Let's talk about the importance of being baptized in the Holy Spirit and what it is and whether being filled with the Holy Spirit is the same thing as being baptized in the Holy Spirit and which comes first, which comes second. Um, And we don't have really don't have time to do it justice. Um, But what were your thoughts? Julia, you had. I think that was the lesson on the um, Ethiopian eunuch. He was filled with his desire to have a connection with God. And he was seeking. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit was able to light upon him. And he says, hey, there's water over there. What's to stop me from going through this ritual? But he already had the Holy Spirit upon him. Same well, thing with all those people in Cornelius's house. Mm-hmm. I missed the first part. Yeah. All the Gentiles that Cornelius, the Gentiles, Cornelius uh, in Gentile, it, Peter went to a Gentile's house that was full of 
Cornelius's, you know, friends and family who were all Gentiles and Holy Spirit fell on them. They started speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter said, well, I guess you'd better be baptized then. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, right? So, so, but it doesn't, the passage doesn't clarify whether that was being filled with the Holy Spirit or being baptized with the Holy Spirit, or if those two things are different. It does. It, it, that's right. It, the, and that's why um, I kind of highlighted that in that passage, the word that was used was they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And the word, that Greek word is the same word we get the word plethora from. They had a plethora of of the Holy Spirit. So yeah. does the, the does the Bible anywhere use a different word that yes. would be translated baptized by the Holy Spirit? Yes. In um, Matthew, um, when John the Baptist tells people, well, I'm baptizing you in water, but there's going to come somebody behind me who's, who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He uses the actual word baptism. So, you know, which is the word baptism. Um, but uh, then there's another place in. Um, uh, so we would, I think we would assume that the decide the 12, you know, were, and those very early, that very early circle that they were baptized with the Holy Spirit, if there's such a thing, and that that would have happened, right? When at Pentecost, um and and the but the word that's used in that passage um is uh the plethora word that they were filled with the holy spirit and things happened martha a question i should know the answer to <laughs> including if it was said today did jesus baptize his disciples with water he, there is record in scripture of, um, of John's disciples getting jealous because Jesus and his disciples are over there baptizing people. Now, it doesn't actually say Jesus baptized somebody. You know, it okay. could have been okay. his disciples baptizing is very sketchy and very little is said about it. Interesting. I would think that would affect the hierarchy of the early church. Hmm. Like I was baptized by Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to get to that. That actually does happen with people saying, well, I was baptized by Paul. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I'm more valid than you are. Um, My personal belief is that being filled with the spirit and baptized with the spirit are synonymous. means the same thing. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And is what do the rest of you guys think? I agree with Shirley. I think it's this, it's basically the same thing. Um, because the Holy Spirit, it's when the Holy Spirit indwells with you, and you I... become kind of one with the Holy Spirit in you, mm-hmm. um, or you know, God, Jesus, whoever. Um, All three. (laughs) The Trinity thing gets me hooked up, hung up sometimes um, because I don't quite understand it. But I think that when you, when God fills you with his love, that is 
your bapt that should be what you call a baptism. That's when God chooses you to live with him and not flail around as much. <laughs> you still flail around, but not as much. <laughs> a baptism in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Go ahead, Marlene. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I think some denominations today appear to require that when you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, that as I was saying in our our smaller discussion group, it must be accompanied by signs and wonders. And I think for most of There are denominations that if you don't speak in tongues, it ain't valid. Yeah. Or perform a miracle of some kind. <laughs> um, and and so I, you know, and, and I think for most of us, that has never happened. Mm-hmm. And and so we would be considered by those Christians to not ever have received the Holy Spirit. To be less than. You know, and- Renee, you said something that struck me about that's God choosing you. I think God chooses us from the beginning. It's when our hearts are softened and we receive the Holy Spirit that we choose God. Okay. Yeah, that's probably a better term. Yeah. And I, I want to point out a couple of, Martha had brought up a, a good point about the words, you know, the words that are being used here, because um, there is a, another place in Acts eight seventeen where Philip, who is the guy who baptized the eunuch, remember? Mm -hmm. Well, Philip goes back home to Caesarea. He lives in Caesarea. And he he, um, preaches and does miracles. And he's like, he's an apostle. And he does all the things. And and all these believers get baptized by him. And after a while, Peter and John come up from Jerusalem to see what's going on up here, what Philip is up to and, and meet all the believers. And they determine that these believers have not been received to the Holy spirit mm-hmm. and they lay hands on them and pray for them. And they, it says, receive the Holy spirit, which is a third word, um, not baptized, not the plethora word, simply receiving take means taking hold of laying hold of something the 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 believers grasped the holy spirit um which is lovely imagery um and then today when when the gentiles in cornelius's house the the word that is used was epepsin which means the holy spirit fell on them so there's the idea of the Holy Spirit falling on us, of us grasping the Holy Spirit. It seems to always be associated with, with um, uh, preaching or a message, not always with laying on of hands. Peter didn't lay hands on every one of those Gentiles before they started, before the Holy Spirit fell on them. Yep. I think when we start trying to put God in a box, around water baptism or Holy Spirit or anything, we are making a mistake. And we are going down that road of putting barriers up. We're drawing lines and we're making little fences and we're defining things. And that's not how the Holy Spirit works. 
There are examples in scripture where the Holy Spirit comes before baptism. There's examples where the Holy Spirit comes after baptism. The Christian church today, by and large, thinks they happen at the same time. That's not necessarily the witness of the scripture. So, so um, I will tell you, you know, here as we wrap up in a minute, I want to hear from Shirley, but I'll tell you what I, what I think, what I think, this whole baptism of the Holy Spirit. I just have a question. Mm-hmm. Um, the word billboard was used by several people. And, um, you know, we talked about the water baptism being our billboard. I kind of think that the baptism of the spirit, if you want to word it that way, is God's built. The water baptism is us saying we belong to God. The being filled with the spirit is God saying you belong to me. I am, um, we are all going to be thinking different things about what water baptism means, what baptism in the Holy Spirit means. I want this to be, I wanted to have this discussion so it could start percolating ideas. And I do want to say I was not casting aspersions on the Methodist church earlier with my anecdote. I, I continued to be, I actually became a Methodist after that. So, so um, for, for, for a while I was a Methodist Um, and, and that was after that, that had happened. So um, I can, I feel like I can sit, sit in the pew with anybody because I'm not about the barriers. I'm just not going to pay attention to them. Um, But, but for me, I agree that the Holy Spirit is what we swim in. The Holy Spirit is what we breathe. The Holy Spirit is every molecule of our body and our soul, whether we ever heard the word Jesus or not. All right. We we are created beings in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is in us. I do also think that the Holy Spirit imbues us, fills us, drops on us, lays hold of us for a particular purpose in a particular situation. And that purpose can be as simple as the one in Cornelius's house, which was to praise God. That is a purpose for which the Holy Spirit rushes and fills us. But it also happens when a billboard needs to be set, when a miracle needs to happen, when a tongue needs to be spoken, when a prophecy needs to be said, when a teaching needs to happen, the, when we are ministering to each other and you can feel it, there is a warmth that comes up from the inside of your soul and spills forth towards that other person. Or really, I've had times where I'll say something to somebody that we're talking about something. I'll say something. And I was like, where, you know, where to come from? And it's just God, you know, he, I think that's more 
probably speaking in tongues than what a lot of people <laughs> believe is speaking in tongues is when God puts the words right there in your mouth. <laughs> That's right. So we we just need to be present, be aware of God, and get out of the way. Be willing. Um, I did. I put a post on my personal Facebook today. Be willing to be made a fool of. You know, be willing to ignore the boundary, to take the risk. Just keep your sights on God and measure by whether what you are doing is bearing good fruit in the lives of the people you're doing it with. Right? That's beautiful. Beautiful, yes. Okay, can I ask you a question? I, I was kind of alluding to it, but I'm not sure. Doesn't the Bible say something about people who turned their back on God? Yeah. And there were consequences. There's, it's in Hebrews. But, but you know what? All of us at some point veer off, you know, the path and then we come back and then we veer off way off and God has to come get us, you know, and God doesn't, it's not necessarily that God brings us back to where we were. God just picks up wherever we are out there in the wilderness. Um, It's, it's, I believe that, but there's that loop in my head you know, from there, and I'm like, I haven't been to church in years. God's going to leave me, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And that's for the Holy Spirit. And yeah. that, I mean, that doesn't and make just sense. Don't let, those, right now, don't, Joe. don't let the, the cherry picking of the verses yeah. impact what you know to be true. And you're in church now. This is two or more believers gathering. Yes. Speaking. It's true. Yeah, I have a a question that I don't know where to ponder it from. The the Trinity, I have, like I said before, I have a really hard time wrapping my brain around what it means. I mean, it's all God, right? Right. It's not like separate people. No. And and it's a. You know, the the idea of the Trinity, of course, was not part of the Hebrew Bible. You know, the Jews just believe Mm -hmm. God is one. You know, there is just one God and God is one. And yet the Holy Spirit is referred to throughout the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. And uh, people are filled with the Spirit. People are uh, operating in the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are clearly operating in the Hebrew Bible. Um, so the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. is an, is a way in which God interacts with us, right? It's a way, that's a way to look at this. So it, the Holy Spirit is God, is God, it's God, God's very spirit, but God is a spirit, but God we've seen God show up looking like an important person, you know, in scripture. Mm. So, and, and, so, and that's, you know, and Jesus, God showing up as a regular human being, as a man. Mm-hmm. All right. Now the, we as Christians get the Trinity idea from, you know, the, the God and the Holy Spirit, but then we put Jesus in there because of the scriptures, the passages that say that that um, God, like the one we read today, that 
that he is the one that has appointed Jesus to be the one who will judge the living and the dead. And, you know, is his kingdom will have no end. And I, and yet there's another verse that we're going to get to that says that in the end, Jesus is just going to hand everything right back to God. And, um, and then, you know, then the, then comes revelation and, and the lamb, you know, Jesus is the light, you know, is the light that, that is in the new Jerusalem, God and the lamb. And so as Christians, we've taken all of these ancient texts and we've kind of triangulated in on this and said, well, God is all of these three things. Um, the Jews don't take all the same set of, of passages. So they, when they triangulate on God, they get a different answer. All right. Okay. So, but in the end, and really when you get to all of the world religions that are actual religions, the focus ends up being on God. God is the beginning and God is the end. That's what Revelation says Jesus is. I am the Alpha, I am the Omega. You know, but if you don't, if Revelation isn't part of your Holy Scripture, you're not going to recognize that for Jesus, mm -hmm. okay? So I don't, I'm going to line up behind Jesus. I'm going to line up under the Jesus flag, okay? Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to invalidate someone else's experience of God through whatever whatever way they experience God. Okay, that makes sense. Ted Lasso, don't judge. Be curious. <laughs> there, you go. there you go. And I don't. And the the I think the most beautiful depiction of the Trinity is of a dance is that it what? Is a, a dance mm. that it is a dance between god jesus the holy spirit and that we are invited into the center of it okay thank you i just trying to figure that all out in my head and i wasn't having a very good <laughs> Yeah, and I just don't spend a lot of time building theological castles and worrying. You know, I, I worry about words all the time in these classes, and I go back to the original, and I tell you what it says and all the things. Mm -hmm. But the but all I'm doing is, is, is painting a picture with these points, with these dots of color. And what's important is to back away and say, okay, then what is the overall impression? What... What do we see? And so when somebody gets hung up on the yellow dot, I'm liable okay. to just try to pry your fingers off and say, okay, well, there's a red dot over here and a blue dot over there. And, and, um, and not to, not to get all bent out of shape with each other over those things. Mm. Yeah. This has been amazing for me today it really has thank same. you all yeah same i gotta shut that loop out that says yeah if i'm bad god leave, the holy spirit leaves me yeah, yeah shut that down that is for sure not god talking 
Same, Julia. Yeah. All right. I love you. I'm going to turn this off oh, yeah. before my computer blows Bye. up. Bye. Okay. Bye. 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 Bye, everybody.